This morning we'll be turning our attention to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Hear the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we consider Psalm 46 and the glorious things that it speaks of the city of God, I begin with good news. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I'm glad to bring good news, but I've got to let you know right off the bat that this is of that sort of good news that causes you to sit back and realize there's some bad news you've got to deal with first. It's good to be told that you've got a very present help in trouble, but the, the catch of that is it means you're in trouble. We oftentimes savor the word that Jesus gives us in John fourteen sixteen. those last words given to his disciples as they sat after supper before he would be uh, surrendered up to the authorities, betrayed before them by one of his own, and then eventually he would be condemned falsely. He would be mocked. He would be martyred. He would be executed in the most brutal way. And there in that evening beforehand, he spoke of how they, who would go their safe ways, they would be given another helper or comforter. And time and again, Jesus refers to this helper who will be sent to them from God on high, who will aid them, who will lead them into the truth, who will remind them of him. And it's all well and good until you sit back and think, well, wait a second, that means I need a comforter. That means I'm going to experience sorrow disappointment, struggle and strife. That means I need help. And here we have a similar word. God is a very present help in trouble. And in the first few verses of this psalm, i got to tell you, it describes the kind of angst that we experience time and time again. And the first thing that we see that's glorious about the city of God is that we can name our shame and our struggle. We have a candid description that deals with reality as it is. You know, sometimes we prefer the darkness, don't we? To the light and the illumination that casts its clear perception upon what we're really dealing with and who we really are. 
I think of a favorite haunt during my college days, Los Burritos Tapitos in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And for a good four years, as I was studying, I would find my way there with friends three or four evenings a week. Never before 10.30 p.m. And college students and truck drivers would populate this place, would pack it out from about 11 to 2 in the morning because human beings ought to eat burritos at 1 in the morning. (laughs) And I remember sitting there with friends, beloved roommates and classmates, and we would talk about hilarious things going on in life, and we would wrestle with the issues that we were pouring over in our studies, and we would cry over disappointments, and we would rejoice over successes, and we would eat dry rice and stale chips and thick refried beans and these burritos that seemed to meet our every culinary need at that time. And I must have eaten there two or three hundred times working my way through college. And then one time, on a return trip with my wife, several years later, we were coming back to visit the alma mater. And I didn't stay up till 10.30, much less 2 a.m. anymore. And so we had to make our visit to the restaurant at 5.30 p.m. (laughs) Well, here's the catch. When the sun hasn't gone down, you can see what's on your plate. And it was not a pleasant experience. My senses had been dulled by the late hour. My perception, and I'll confess, my judgment was apparently off all those many years. And I have not returned since. What was enjoyable when not really perceived was terrible when seen in its reality. And I confess, I think we oftentimes go through life, even as Christians, preferring the darkness of midnight, the dulled senses. But the psalmist here doesn't allow us that kind of approach. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You know, pain comes in different ways, and struggle is perceived in varied forms. Sometimes it feels as though the ground beneath you is literally falling into the sea, as though that which was settled, that which was firm, that which could be relied upon is no more. Perhaps someone whom you have trusted, someone whom you have turned to has proven to be duplicitous or abusive or has simply left your life. And that rock, that strength is no more. And that which seems so sure, perhaps because of vows taken, perhaps because of years walked through together, has left an abyss of pain and disappointment. At other times, as we in Florida along the coast appreciate, it's not that the ground beneath us is gone, it's that the sea simply comes up and overwhelms us. And so we've got this image of the waters roaring and foaming and coming up and seeming to overwhelm. At times it's not that we've changed, it's not that our situation 
has shifted. It's simply that the events of life seem to come out of nowhere. The challenges, the struggles, the temptations, the pitfalls, they are coming upon us, oftentimes in droves, it it seems. And the psalmist gives us a candid portrayal, a candid portrayal of the pain and the struggle and the challenge and the difficulty of life. And I find that's one of the most profound gifts of the gospel, that in a world that has a way of seeking the dumbing down and the darkened perception of our experience, Christianity provides an emotionally aware portrayal of what we experience. And that the Psalms, more than any other text of the Bible, help us to name all the joys and the sorrows of our experience. So that wherever you may be this morning, you can take it before God with the words of His Word. With David and the others whose psalms and hymns are gathered together, we can speak out from any situation, even the harrowing and the humiliating. And we can take it before the Lord. And we know we can do so because Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came and experienced life just like us, yet without sin, the one who bore our every sorrow, the one who was named the man of sorrows before he was named anything else, he, in that moment of excruciating shame and alienation upon the cross, could take the words of the Psalms before his God and Father, the one who had smiled upon him in all eternity past, and he could, with David's words as his own, scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The lament that we find in the Psalms provides a candid light on our struggle. And that's remarkably clarifying. That's freeing to be able to name things the way they are. You know, I have many friends who serve as counselors working in therapeutic contexts, seeking to bring about change and growth and flourishing and development in people's lives where they come from different situations. And the greatest difficulty, of course, is getting people to face reality, to speak in candid, clear ways that really jive with the nature of the issue, whatever it may be. Why things are going well or why things are going very poorly. Naming it is the first great challenge. And here we see one glorious thing of the city of God is a candid sense of the difficulty and the darkness that we face in this sinful world and that we face in our own sinful hearts. But the psalmist goes on. And we see, beginning in verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, we see in verses 4 to 7, a description of a second glorious thing spoken of the city of God. That the waters that rise and the land that falls into the sea, these do not overwhelm us or overcome us. That though there is a candid portrayal of our struggle and difficulty, there is no pessimism here. But there is a word of promise. We read, there is a river whose streams make glad or make happy the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
Yes, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. To the image of the waters rising up and in a completely uncontrolled onslaught, the psalmist now describes the image of a river directed. A river with borders and edges. A river that's not a threat, but that provides life and sustenance for flourishing and growth. God provides a river amidst all the storms and all the chaos of this flooding world. This river streams upon us and it makes us glad and happy. Now it's crucial to note, just as the psalmist doesn't here leave us in despairing pessimism, the psalmist also isn't suggesting that you ought to be a naive optimist. The psalmist isn't somehow saying, actually, the difficulties that I described in those first three verses, they're not so bad as you think. Now he'll come back, even as he's talking about the, the positive uh, aspirations and expectations we have, he'll have to say again and again, the nations do rage, kingdoms do totter, difficulty remains. Christians here and elsewhere are led by the apostles and the prophets alike not to be despairing pessimists nor naive optimists, but to be people of hope. And hope is something completely different, isn't it? Hope is not an assessment that the troubles are less than we thought. Hope is not somehow a perception that we're more strong than we thought. Hope is to look beyond the bounds of the situation entirely. You remember the Israelites as they were brought out of Egypt in that great exodus where God had patiently sought to prompt Pharaoh, the mightiest man in the land, to let them go and at the course of this long cycle of plagues where Pharaoh had refused to do so, finally, finally, when God took his firstborn, Pharaoh relented and the people of Israel, his slaves, were let out. And they journeyed across, heading towards the promised land. And of course, Pharaoh realized what he'd just done. He'd lost his free labor. And so he sends the chariots. And you remember, of course, the Israelites find themselves in the worst of situations. This is precisely what you do not want. To be stuck between the sea and the chariots. But that's where they are. But they did not give up hope. They didn't think that the chariots were any less threatening or the sea any less a threat to their forward progress. But they believed God and they trusted His servant Moses, we're told in Exodus 14.31, and God opened up the waters that they might journey forth. God intervened from the outside. Lakes don't do that. It wasn't that the Israelites were suddenly stronger. It wasn't that Egypt was suddenly weaker. It was that promise came from above. Intervention came from heaven itself. Similarly, here we're told not, don't worry, things just get better. Nor, don't worry, you've got a firm, you've got a firm backbone, you'll make it. We're not told any of those things. We're told the nations do rage, kingdoms do totter. 
The waters do rise and the land does seem to sink. But the dwelling place of God is with us. God doesn't simply give you a word. God doesn't simply give you some sort of ability. God doesn't give you encouragement. God doesn't simply give you a command, but that God also most significantly gives you Himself. God is present. God steps onto the stage of human misery and sin. God intervenes into this drama of struggle and strife. God is in the midst of her, and so she is called His holy habitation. Thus, she shall not be moved. That's why at the end of the Bible, when we hear of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, and Revelation 21 and 22 go on to describe her glories, which are manifold. Revelation describes so many things. The the bejeweled nature of her doors, the glorious expanse and size, the breadth of her, the fact that she takes up so much space beyond what any ancient mind could have fathomed. And of course, it describes the absence of things that we struggle with, sin and sorrow and tears and shame and pain and difficulty and strife. But the most notable thing in the entire image is that which is said first and last, Behold, I am coming soon. And the most notable absence is not that of tears or pain or sin or shame, but of a temple. That there is no small place where God's glory is located, but the entire place is His temple. The entire city is His temple, described as a cube like the Holy of Holies, that innermost chamber where God's glory dwelled amidst Israel, where His holy habitation was. And we learn at the end of all things that God's glory is with us everywhere. That it has filled the whole earth, as the Apostle says. Therefore, we shall not be moved. Therefore, we are glad. Therefore, though we have no optimism, we have deep and abiding hope, no matter what our circumstances are. If A candid perception of our situation is that we are in times of difficulty and struggle, personally and publicly. And if the promise of God is that He will be with us, not merely He'll help or He'll send aid, but that He will step down and be with us, that we not be moved. Then third, the psalmist tells us how that ought to shape our life. How do we live? How do I live... When times are tough, and when the promise of God is sure, how do I go about my life? What what might this do in shaping my posture and my walk this day? And we see in verses 8 to 11 the way in which we are called forward in a perhaps surprising way. Come behold the works of the Lord, how He's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the refrain again, as in verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our fortress. Notice there are two commands. There are two commands. And these are commands that we typically don't give to our children or our employees. And I would suggest these are commands that as Christians we so easily glide past. But we do well to slow down and pay some attention. In verse 8 we're told, Come behold the works of the Lord. You have to come. You can't sit where you are. You have to move forward. You have to, to move your location, as it were, so that you might behold, you might see, you might take in what God has done, these works of the Lord. It's a phrase that's used so often in the Psalms to describe the mighty acts of God on behalf of His people. They are overwhelming. You remember, of course, the evangelists often recount, as John concludes his gospel account, that Jesus did many other things, and were we to include them all, the books of all the world wouldn't be big enough to describe them. And he's picking up on an idea from the Psalms, that the works of God are overwhelming in their scope and size. You consider the works of creation, that in the ocean depths where no one can see them, there are creatures that we cannot imagine, and yet God took the time to make them. That in the distant galaxies out there, there are planets and systems that none of us get to, and yet God made them because it delighted Him. His glories, His mighty acts and deeds so far exceed our understanding. And we consider in the works of grace and redemption the fact that God is always more present and active than the eye can perceive. That God goes before us. God works amidst us in ways that none of us can fully take in. His works are so profound and so broad, so powerful, and oftentimes so exceed our imagination. And so we are called to behold them to behold them, with Scripture-shaped lenses to look out at the world and to seek to take in all that God is doing, to turn away, to come away from busy, from hurry, from distraction, to come to that which is most significant, that we might take it in and adore. And then see also in verse 10 a second commandment, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Here, we're told to be still. We're told to calm ourselves. We're to slow down that we might know that He is God. This word, to know that He is God, speaks to more than merely some sort of intellectual assent or affirmation, but a cherishing and a treasuring and an intimate love of the fact that He is our God. We are called away from rush and hurry, as we sometimes sing, to delight ourselves in the fact that God is our God and we are His people, that He has made covenant with us, and that we must be still to contemplate that, to meditate upon that, to adore Him 
for all that he is doing and all that he's pledged to be for his people. You know, we live in a land marked by speed. When you read the history of philosophy, you hear that there is but one philosophical movement in this land of invention. There's only one philosophical movement that the U.S. has ever birthed. Pragmatism. But we have brought you the fast food diner. We have brought you the microwave. And we have brought you the internet. We are all about speed. We are all about activity, aren't we? From 200 years ago, when Alexei de Tocqueville came from Europe to observe, he noted this is an activistic people, and of all sorts, whatever their persuasions, religions, philosophies, they're doers. America is a land of those who grab the bull by the horns, as it were, and seek to do something. And of course, he praises the many ways in which that shapes our society. But he also notes, as I think we can at times, the struggles and limits of that. It's crucial to remember how often God's word calls us to be still and to come away from rush and hurry, to move away from what traditionally Christians have called the active life that we might focus in contemplation, prayer, and study upon the God who's to be adored. Think of how many rhythms of the Christian faith are pragmatically foolhardy. Project managers are not going to somehow suggest that Sabbathing is the most fundamental way forward to business success. But here we are, it marks our calendar like nothing else, taking a day away from rest. And of course, in an agrarian society, in a a society of the farm where the animal is there on Sunday as every other day, this is a big deal. We are called in faith to exercise our love for God in many ways. Chief among them, as the catechism will put it, is the chief exercise of prayer. Prayer is, on its own face, not the most productive activity. You go off to a room and you talk. And seemingly you're in a room by yourself and you're talking. These practices make no sense unless there be a God, and not just any God, but the God of the gospel, the God who commends these disciplines and these rhythms of our lives, a God who calls us to come and to behold his works, a God who calls us to be still and to love that he and not we is God. All of this is premised on, all of this flows out of this fundamental conviction that the Almighty really is, as we say in the Creed, our Father. And that fathers don't abandon their children. And that this Father is willing to sacrifice all, even the firstborn Son, that we, His sons and daughters, might enjoy His glory, His happiness, His gladness forevermore. And so this day, as we're at the beginning of a year, as we do struggle with honestly addressing the difficulties of life, and as we are distracted by so many things that call for our pressing attention, I think the psalmist calls each of us 
to attend to, to adore the glories of the city of God. The glories of the God who is present there. The glories of the God who has founded and fashioned her. The glories of the God who preserves and maintains her. The glories of the God who here fights for and proves himself victorious on her behalf. The glories of the God who wants not to be by himself, but to be with us by grace in Jesus Christ. That's a call to stillness. That's a call to coming away from rush and hurry. That's a call to adoring all that God has done. That's a call to knowing and treasuring the fact that God, and not we ourselves, is the true God. Sits on the throne, rules all of history, and will have the final say over your life and mine. And that's ultimately what so many of our difficulties are about, isn't it? That at the end of the day, we worry that if we don't do it, it won't be done. That if we don't intervene, it won't happen. That if we don't get moving, things won't progress. C.S. Lewis would speak of how we oftentimes drift into that kind of practical or functional atheism. Now, it may not be that we don't think there's a God. It may be that we think this below his pay grade to worry about the small matters of our lives, of our families, our businesses, our struggles, our dreams and worries, our fears and our failures. It may be that we think he knows but he's ashamed of us. He's angry at us. But we need to remember that the words of the psalmist are echoed by Paul writing to the Romans, who will speak of neither life nor death, things present or things to come, separating us from the love of God. Why? Because Romans 8.32 tells us that this one willingly gave up his son. How will he not also with him give us all other things? If this father of ours, this heavenly father, willingly gave up his firstborn on my behalf, how do I not trust, know, and love that he will provide every smaller need I have? And so we are called to adore, to meditate, to contemplate, to savor the glories of his works and his deeds that we might be deepened in our trust that we might be freed from our fears, that we might be sent out to love and to serve those to whom he would have pleasure to send us to. And so it it just might be that the person who adores and contemplates and meditates, who comes and is still, who takes in and knows that God is their God, that they will at the end of the day be the one of greatest active benefit to their neighbor. They will pause, they won't jump in the fray, they won't immediately respond to the need of the day, but they will go before God. They will be still and know that He is Lord, as we've already sung. And out of that stillness will come a surety and a security and a sense of confidence, not of optimism, but of hope that God is with them and that they shall not be moved And out of that confidence will come a willingness to to selflessly love, to give up one's own preferences and comforts for the benefit of others, to radically give of what one has by God's grace that others might receive goodness and truth and beauty in this life.
And so as we go about this Sabbath day and we look to the week ahead, I want to remind each of you that there's much to do and you'll face difficulty in doing it. But you have the promise as the city of God that God is with you and you shall not be moved. And the first order of business is not to open for business, but to be still, to come, to behold the works of the Lord, to know that He is God, and out of that adoring love, then to go to love and to serve our neighbors, that we might be freed by that faith in the God of the gospel, and freed for that kind of selfless service and generosity to those around us. We confessed earlier with the words of the catechism that the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, is meant to do a number of things to remind us of our sin. And then we we said that it drives us out of ourselves. And that's precisely what adoring God and the works of God and his word does. It, It gets you out of yourself. And it places you in Christ. It gets you out of your own sense of accomplishment or of failure. And it gets you into union with Jesus Christ, who is your warrior and your king. It gets you out of your fear and your shame. And in Christ, it places you in a position of divine blessedness and gladness. It gets you out of yourself and your comfort and preference. And with Christ, it puts you on the ground kneeling to serve others with love and humility. And I'd wager that's what we all need. Let's pray and ask that God would make that true of each of us. Father, we thank you that amidst the troubles of a week and the trials of a day, we can turn to you and know that you are with us, that kingdoms come and go, but your city will not be moved because you are with her. And so we rejoice that by grace you have made your home with us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that in Jesus you have moved into the neighborhood and promised never to go. Would you grant us confidence in Him? Would you grant us faith in Him? Would you grant us hope in His kingdom? And would you grant that each of us might worship you as you have revealed yourself in and through Him, that with Him we might go to serve our neighbors? that like him, we might give ourselves up for the sake of your call. Would you make it so by your grace this day and evermore? Amen.